Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. Philanthropy, money, and doing good. But how do you measure success? Tim Volk's guest is Rob Koffold, and this is part two of Tim and Rob's discussion of philanthropy. But this time, we figure out if being good can work. Mm, that was good, Patrice. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Tim Volk. Welcome to the Rainbow Bowl podcast. And I want to welcome Rob back to continue our discussion around philanthropy. Uh, as I mentioned before, Rob and I are good friends. I don't know how many years we've known each other. Quite a bit. Too many. And Rob was just sharing that that there was a time when I would text him. He's always been so good at calling back or responding to my request to help something. He's just, he's been on the Tim fan club for a while. I think that's what it's called. The Tim fan club. I'm going <laughs> to, you, you did threaten that I was stalking you. I don't know that I was stalking you. It doesn't, if I just, it sounded like stalking Tim. Well, I was texting you and he didn't respond. So I called his assistant. She was lovely. <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm. So, Rob, I think it's really exciting to continue this conversation. Um, and this part of what we want to cover is really how do we know if we're doing good? How do we measure uh, whether there's success or impact that we're having? And one of the articles that you wrote with the, for Global Law Business had this paragraph I thought was interesting that said the summer of 2015 issue of Conscious Company Magazine analyze this huge transfer, this global $16 trillion that are going to transfer to the next generation in the coming 30 years. Although we've been hearing this for quite a while, by the way, that's right. stat. And it can be 16 to 30 trillion, but anyway, there's a huge amount of wealth that's transferring. And they cited that they estimated 7 trillion of the wealth, this is with a T, uh, will be controlled by millennials by 2020. I don't think that happened. So this is when 2014, right, or 15. But that 70% of this wealth will be inherited by women, continuing a growing, growing trend of women controlling the majority of estates whose values exceed $5 million. Why is this important? Conscious Company notes that millennials and women will share common philanthropic vision, estimating that between 45 and 50% of those inheritors are interested in helping others, either through philanthropic giving or socially responsible investing. Maybe the wealth estimate of the potential charitable impact of this historic wealth transfer is low. I mean, the, the numbers are huge. Yep, massive. I mean, right? I don't think we understand that. And that the transfer is something... Um, Paul Shervis is the one in, out of Boston College who's done the research on that mm -hmm. work. And, and there's different degrees of accuracy that's kind of unfolded over the last, since that article was written. Um, and there's some of it that's true. The, parts of it is true is that wealth controlled by women has increased substantially. That's a, that's a true fa fact. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. Um, the other thing that's important in that, and I know you've done this in other podcasts, is a lot of that, how does that wealth transfer? And 
part mm-hmm. of it is it'll transfer via trust in most cases, especially right. for the wealthiest mm-hmm. people. And the, the challenge for trusts and for trustees specifically is that within trust structure, there's very rarely has there historically been an ability to donate money out of trust. The trustee's responsibility is to maintain asset value and grow it for beneficiaries and future beneficiaries of the trust. Mm-hmm. So anything that degrades the trust is not an accepted use of funds by a trust. That's that's just law. And I'm not a lawyer, so accountant, so you can check me if I'm wrong. But there, recently, and there are movements towards creating abilities within trust to give away money. And there's reasons for that within the accounting world is that it reduces the taxable income for distributions and because it is a, a charitable deduction for the trust. And there's other mechanics behind why that's important. But there are beginning to show, and this is the evolution of what you just shared, of, mm-hmm. of roles and responsibilities that have a charitable part of their job to help sustain kind of what the beneficiary experiences of getting that money and, and having that beneficiary fully thrive as they receive their wealth. Part of it has become very clear that philanthropy is, is a piece of that puzzle mm-hmm. in different degrees, depending on different families. And so um, that work without the numbers behind it definitely continues. And, and as more advisors get trained on what philanthropy is and how it integrates into a family system or an estate plan or those types of things, all that is, is actively happening um, right now. I think our friend Jay Hughes had a, a, a statement or a quote that he said, and I think I've said it with Jill when we had Jill Shipley on the show, but that 80% of people that inherit money feel it's a burden, 10% feel it's a gift, and the other 10% are somewhere in between that. Mm-hmm. Do we have yeah. a, does it, how does, do you think philanthropy impacts that at all? Do we know, or do we have it, any? It helps with the burden side. It, mm-hmm. it, and, and it's, there's a lot of it that's part of that is education, you know, family education, wealth education. What does that actually mean? The other thing is that the growth in wealth over the last five years is substantial. Like as we talked about last time, giving has increased to half a trillion dollars a year. It's not an insignificant number. Um, half a trillion. Wealth, half a trillion in giving a year. That's a huge number. The wealth of families we've seen is increasing dramatically and not just in the 1%, but in, in that period, there's massive wealth within the system. There is abundance from that standpoint, even though there are definitely examples where abundance does not show itself or is restricted or is hidden behind gates and stuff like that. But there is within, there is in that system abundance. And so for those of us working in philanthropy, it's how, how do we get to that? How do we access it? And for me, sitting in the middle of the nonprofits that I partner with and the families that I serve, it's a way to kind of unlock. And as we said before in the mm-hmm. previous episode, really accelerate giving into philanthropy is a is a key part of our work. And it's, it's going to become the key part of Arlington's work. We're going to measure success on dollars out the door. So of our philanthropic clients, we're going to measure our success on how fast or how effective we get dollars mm-hmm. out to charities and out to events. It's not going to be to accumulate philanthropic dollars. It's actually going to be to distribute. And so in that way, like how, how do I help families distribute? So that's my purpose, not to just kind of dedicate assets to philanthropy, but actually activate them and engage them in the work. Which I like. 
because we're going to talk yeah. about a little challenge with some of the structures today with that. Sure. But if we were to review, you you had a great way of summarizing for the first podcast we did. In charity, there are four things that you can look at with the charitable group. Yep. So it this is from CHIP's High Impact Learning Academy. It's called the four plays. And so the four distinct areas is supporting direct services. So in your community services that should be sustained and continue. The second is growing capacity, growth, um, scaling, that type of stuff, second part. The third is research and innovation, understanding if your intervention is working, if who it's working for, who it's not, and where it could be improved, or if it's a new innovation, where it could get started. And the fifth is policy and advocacy work, is how do you eventually connect your philanthropic effort to public dollars um, that can then balance out the debt, the the revenue for a nonprofit between this philanthropic giving and, that, and its public support. Perfect. And then, and then we talk about the five capitals and that's yours and my uh, part of our learning with our mentors with, with Jay is, is the five capitals. And how does this fit within the five capitals? So this is all of the five capitals within. So this is the extra, my view, yep. but this is the external, realization of your five capitals. So as you build spiritual capital, human capital, intellectual, mm -hmm. and social capital, supported by your financial capital, the outward of the outward vision of the, that work, it can be your philanthropic work. And so it your philanthropy should be the reflection of your capitals. So the impact. And, and, and the impact and the strengthening of your capitals as well is it, it should be a contributor to the strengthening of your capitals and the realization of your capitals out in the world. So are there any common characteristics among families that embrace philanthropy? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I know that's sort of. Yeah. Let me think about that one. I like the idea that there are probably, I think the, em the empathy, the, the, mm -hmm. that ability to have empathy beyond themselves is probably the most common, right? Yeah, I, I think I would start with that one. Is like something, so something grips you to do philanthropy, whether it's your empathy, a crisis moment, um, you know, something happens in your community that's devastating that needs and needs to be addressed, that you have the resources to address. Like something grabs you and brings you into philanthropy. I think that's an empathy. That's what you're referring to. That's empathy. Is like I'm it's a, a catalyst. Human. It's like the yeah, catalyst. Exactly. I'm a human in a system that I want to thrive something happens, brings me into it, or I see something that I can't stand exists and I do something about it. So there's just some kind of empathy. But for families specifically, the other thing I would add is that families are super charged problem solvers. That's what yep. they do. That's how they created their wealth. That's how they you know, created lasting legacies with their families. That's, they're pretty important problem solvers or interesting right. problem solvers. And that that passion to solve a problem drives a lot of like, well, how can I bring resources to this? And what does financial support work look like? But all, or is it connection to my congressman who I have a direct relationship with because I fund them? Like, so what is it that actually is going to help in that moment? And how do I problem solve an issue? I had a, a great friend here in Denver who's a, a foundation individual donor super incredibly generous and was working with a food pantry. We talked a little bit in the mm -hmm. last one yeah. and he walked into one of their main store warehouses and he said, well, where are the refrigerators? 
And you're like, oh, we can't afford the refrigerators. We just kind of process and we get it out as fast as we can and we go from there. And he goes, oh, okay, that's ridiculous. And then in the next week, two industrial-sized refrigerators showed up in their warehouse so they could actually preserve food for long periods of time. Yes, capital investment was expensive. They had the space, so it wasn't like they didn't have to create a building for it. But And they had the power ability to support it. The so room, there, right. there, there were things in place that he... Um, understood and said, oh, uh, well, let's just put a couple of refrigerators here and let's walk-ins that we can then preserve and then extend the life of the food that we have so that we can extend what we offer. Like that problem solving, that ability to, to have that thousand foot view of the problem is a massive asset. And I think common amongst the really great philanthropists I've had. The I, honor was, I was thinking for. about the, the uh, I didn't mean to, to, to yeah. stop you there, but the Maui incident with the fire, they had it on CBS and they showed that the surfer, I can't think of the top surfer in the world is from Maui and Hawaii. And he, so he had the boats, he had all his friends get boats that had boats and they took food and water, everything yeah. over to the families that were struggling. Yep. Now what he's done is he's raised the awareness so much because so many families can't afford to rebuild. Right. So now he's got the Congress and the and the state involved to try and and, and private equity to try and help preserve the right. families, some of the families that can stay there and rebuild their homes. Right. Because so many people want to come in and commercialize all this space, which were which were residences and neighborhoods, but with, that is what sort of made up the community. Right. And he used his celebrity. And we've seen that before, but I mean I just thought it was he had the yep. innovation that we can't get there by car. Let's just take our boats. Everybody get their boats and we'll go yep. over there. Yep. And he had exactly. surf he had surf stuff. And I mean, it was just so clever. Yeah. But there you go. There's your perfect example, right? So there's your social capital that you've you've built over time. So go mm -hmm. connect to your capital that you're deploying for your philanthropic purpose. Your external view of your social capital is the ability to engage that group that they would drop everything and move their boats. Of course they would, but that's that doesn't happen overnight, right? It, it, if he didn't have those relationships or that community or that social capital that he's developed and he's calling strangers, many still in that case, specifically Maui, many would still have engaged as well. It's that devastating of an event, but it's not always going to get that same level of support yeah. because he had social capital and he was a respected member of the community and he was an empathetic person and he had developed those relationships. He could deploy his social capital for a philanthropic purpose, which will Patrice, continue for just, years. Thank God we have such a, we have this great producer, Patrice Sakura, everybody, and she keeps us on track, but it's surf legend, Archie Kalepa, Kalipa? How do you I pronounce it's Kalipa. it? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's Kalipa. Uh, yeah. It's a perfect example of something innovative, impromptu in many ways, because uh -huh. it was urgent to an issue. Sure. So, Let's talk about impact and scale. Yep. What do you want us to think about? How do you want to frame this? So as a executive director of a private foundation, I was asked all the time, how do I measure our success? And all the time I would say, I don't really know. I love that. Because it's different. And I, mm -hmm. I always struggled with it. And so I'm happy to share what I've learned along the way and, mm -hmm. and the ways we've done it. And one of the things um, to acknowledge is that one of the things is building trust with organizations was always key to everything, impact, scale, everything. Is okay. Can you build a relationship with the people you're working with so they can trust you to share their biggest issues, challenges, problems, 
that they need help solving or do they hide them from you because you will think less of them because they haven't solved it? So can you develop? And for us, we deployed our, at the Hamara Foundation where I worked before, we deployed our accounting teams to help manage books and records and do back office services just to give some relief to the team that also gave us the opportunity to de develop trust and learn more about their organization. So our giving could be very specific as to where help was needed, where the executive director really needed their um, engagement. So building trust was important. I also think Im impact and scale get lumped into the same place. And the biggest learning I had is I think they're different. And so I'll, I'll explain what okay, that means. Okay. Impact is whether or not your intervention, whatever you're doing, is solving a problem. Is it curing an ill? Is it rebuilding Maui? Is it rebuilding um, Superior Colorado where the Marshall Fire is? Where the Marshall Fire is. It, right. Is it effective and efficient at solving a problem? And is it financially sustained so that it, it will take for as however long it takes to solve that problem? Is it there for its long term impact? Is the, is the intervention solvable? I love this. This is my favorite. Is my favorite diligence question on impact is when we met meet executive director is, what would it take for you to be out of business? What would it take for you to That's no longer have question. to worry about this ever? Really good question. Yeah, I like that question. I'm not asking about time. And I'm like, um, what time frame is this? I'm not asking about how much money. I'm like, what would it take for you to solve whatever intervention. So my impact view is, and because in that question, the executive director naturally defines a community. Well, I work in Superior, Colorado, I work in Maui, Hawaii, or I work in Anchorage, Alaska. Well, okay, well then I've narrowed it down to geographical focus. That's really all that's important for what I'm doing with you right now. It's not that this is gonna be a national effect or like that kind of thing. So what is it that, what takes it? And then you get into deeper levels. So what is it? impact for me is are you making progress to eliminating the problem that you've identified? Are you? Yes or no. And, and what's the research and the information you're gathering to determine whether or not you are or not? And what are the improvements you need along the way? That's what it, that's what I think it, impact conversations okay. are in that okay. section. So if you, if you're the food bank, like we used before, and you were serving 2 million uh, families. Now you're serving 4 million. The that's impact, not impact. Nope. No, nope. that's scale. That's scale. That's so scale. impact would be that the 2 million people are self-sufficient, um, are nourished, not necessarily self. The okay. goal would be okay. the goal of the soup, the kitchen, right? Is that no one needs to come here anymore. Right. So right, right. at the end of the day is that they're they're nourished during their time and that, that, that two million actually declines. Okay, so the impact That's would the impact. be that the that we're able to feed them, that they have food, no one goes hungry. Yes, of the people that come to us, and we connect them to enough services that they our service is no longer needed. Okay, okay, that's impact. I like that. Okay, scale, which and you can invest your philanthropic dollars in that work, right? Too many times because um, families have made so much wealth on so much fast, they then connect, well, well, it worked here. Let's do it to a billion places. That's not always the right thing because philanthropic interventions have a cultural element to it 
that it they have to honor what's happening in the culture locally or demographically as to maybe it's not accepted or not. Maybe uh-huh. an intervention in Texas or an intervention in Colorado is going to be different than it would be in Hawaii or in Alaska or in New York. Like what you have to understand what's actually driving the issue. Now, yes, okay. everybody needs food, right? But the way it's delivered or the social service that's needed, like the, the impact is actually going to be different in those communities, even though the source is the same. Okay. Or, or for the food. So that's for scale. When an intervention is, is figured out that it works scale and, and you see this, like you said, we went from 2 million to 4 million. Our cost per recipient is $1. Like for every dollar we get, you see this a lot with African charities is saying like, if we get a dollar 53 cents a day, like we'll be able to serve 10,000. Those are all scale metrics. Those are saying, I have figured it out. I know what's going to be successful in this community to, to rid ourselves of whatever it is the issue it is, disease, rolling out a vaccine, anything. But to do scale, I need dollars to reduce the cost of the delivery and then deliver it. Okay. That's great philanthropy to do that. But understand that that's what you're doing. You're not really under, not really changing the intervention although you learn from scale and of course changes always happens, but the intervention is pretty much set at that point. Now you're saying, all right, we're going to go test this within multiple communities to see if it can be capped, see if the effect can be done elsewhere. But it's different to me in the way I looked at it and the way we would invest in, in organizations is different. So if a group, like I have great friends at a group called active minds who are in most college campuses in the U S like their job, they have figured it out. They figured out the model on campuses that engage students to help raise their hand that they need mental health support. Wonderful program, phenomenal led program locally, as well as an effective leader here in Colorado. Okay. So, mm-hmm. but she just needs to be on every college campus. So her job, the dollars we're giving is to scale to all these colleges, then get okay. feedback and adapt. But her, so you're investing in her to scale because she's kind of figured out the model that works for college campuses. I don't need to invest in that so much. I need to help her go bigger. Although there's always a little bit of both in any of these things. And so um, that's, I, I, I impact to me scale is, is a different, I guess it's an impact as well, but it's scale always was very no, different because scale is, is can this be accepted? Expanded and, by and grown. Right. Exactly. Right. But it so, doesn't actually change the outcome you're seeking to chop to a the impact the, is still the, the impact. impact of the impact. Yeah, exactly. So when you said earlier that you were trying to give us a bigger view of things, that the donors don't have a full view of the puzzle. They're yeah. one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. It's kind of important to try and get a bigger view if you right. can. But it's also the it's similar is is to understand is your dollars going towards the impact of the intervention that's being developed environmentally as well or is it going to to grow an organization or scale an organization very different outcomes right so if you say oh i'm giving for if your executive director takes your money and and says well we figured out the intervention yeah and you're disappointed because they didn't go to four million people you've missed the match right so if you've had the conversation Uh and say Okay, our goal, you and me, is to grow to four million people. We're going to help and bet. We're going to give you gifts along the way to help you get, and we're going to commit the the time mm-hmm. needed for you to get to four million people. 
great. I'm not worrying about the intervention, even though that will come along with it. But that's what I'm helping you do. And that's, in again, in partnership with the executive director who will always share this information with you. None of these questions will ever like they'll always they won't share. phase any of them. No, because they have to deal with them all the time. And you're asking them, like, how can I help? Go back to, you know, Edward Schein's book, Edgar Schein's book is to say, like, how can I help? And the question is like, well, I really need I think we got it. So now we need to scale it. OK, well, let, what does it take to scale it? And a director of ours used to ask all the time, like, OK, we're going to give you an investment today on day one, what's the investment, what's going to have to happen within the next three years for you to then ask for another dollar? Like to like what, what does success look like in that period of time that then allows us to re-up our gift? And what, what has to happen today to start that process? And can we invest in that today? So you're not left holding the bag at the end of this and say, Hey, actually we should have been doing this two years ago, but we didn't like, like, it's just, Aligning time, let's take a step back, aligning the time period you're helping, mm -hmm. understanding if it's you're designing an intervention or a solution, or you're designing something for a wider population. Okay. Those are critical for me questions as to whether or not, to your original question, are we having impact? Because our impact is only defined by whatever I defined it at the beginning. Okay. And every grant is different. Hey, hey, sorry for the interruption. Look, I know you're listening to the Rainbow Bull podcast, and I'm really happy you're here. But if you have any questions or issues you'd like to have us discuss with the experts, please email them to us at tim.volk at tvolkco.com. We would love to hear from you. But we don't always think about that when we go in to, to write a check. For example, no. particularly, you know, because people think, well, I got to give some money away at the end of the year. So I got to, I got to, you know, I want to deduct something. So I'm going to write a check to somebody. Different. It's different. Whereas I think the the more fulfilling yes. way to do this is to say, I have an interest in, uh, for example, I have an interest, personally, I have an interest in our homeless gay youth. Mm -hmm. And so I found that Chicago House in, is one of the charities and organizations, one of the oldest in Chicago that have been dealing with this. They house them, they help get them back on their feet and they help to 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 not only just provide a temporary thing but they're also trying to get them back into society and and solve for education if they've dropped out of school or you know yep. whatever their gaps are because it's as you said earlier it's not just that one thing it's representative of a whole other stuff but if you were to call Michael the executive director and say okay what can we do to help he may say well we just need more beds or we need to grow this or we're thinking about trying to do this and help other communities or or maybe we're going to expand a mental health or yep. we're going to partnership with schools yep. to make sure they get their ged and maybe into college yep right uh, yeah i'll give you an example so writing um grant agreement with a program at the university of chicago called 30 million words at the time and uh -huh, uh -huh. we were we were giving grants we had given we were one of the original funders and then continuing to give grants and we were, they were balancing where their dollars were coming from. So they, to be successful, that organization, that program to prove its intervention worked needed a randomized control trial to do it. So a randomized control trial is when is a scientific study of whether or not a program or intervention is effective within okay. a given population. And so we helped, but they didn't, we, our grant wasn't big enough to support that but it was big enough to get us started. 
And so we allowed them to get it started. And then some another organization came in and funded the whole program. But they limited the amount of overhead costs that could be attributed to it. So all I did was shift our grant from supporting the, the randomized control trial to supporting the operating expenses. So again, it's just a puzzle that eventually, like, well, if we are flexible and the value that you can give an organization is being flexible with your dollars is yeah, where right, it goes. Right. And we've talked about that a little bit in trust-based philanthropy and giving general operating dollars. This is what this is what this means. Is like, are you flexible with your dollars that you allow the organization to put it where it needs it? Because that organization was PNC Bank gave a big grant that allowed the program to go to to be to be done and work being done. But it it limited some of the operating expenses that we could support. All of a sudden, this puzzle looks from, looks complete. The organization can go forward, and now is in a couple different. The you know, trial is in a bunch of different states, and then it's part of pediatric programs across the U.S. And it's just a matter of just can you flex your dollars into the place where it's like, hey, we can activate this huge thing if you just do this little adjustment. Easy again, easy. Of course, you do that, and so it's it's. But you know that because you've engaged with the executive director, you understand the system, you understand that you're, you're opining on an intervention and you're helping it come to life and you're not scaling. We weren't scaling. That's what we're scaling came later, but that's part of the process. It's just, can you be a puzzle problem? Can you help solve problem solve parts of the puzzle? And here are my pieces. And, and every executive director will say, here are all my pieces. I have this big hole in the middle. Can you fund that? And then or, that may lead to this other stuff. Maybe the key, maybe the linchpin to make it all right. work. And again, that's a really successful outcome. And um, it, there's always places where it doesn't fit, doesn't work as <laughs> right, well. And right, right. there's always things that are get complicated, especially working with universities. There's all sorts of things that happen in that process that make it. It's not as easy as what I'm sharing it right now. But it's the theory is right. Is theory is what's the piece of the puzzle? Even doing someone's books and records for a year sometimes is enough of the puzzle, so they don't have to worry about. It. They don't have to worry about is my 990 file correctly. Like there's a burden that you've lifted with that right. to, to allow them to do the work that they're actually intended, why they started this work in to begin with. So measuring impact and scale in that way is Very critical important. to come back and say, all right, what did I try to do? I tried to influence the intervention in the 30 million words case. I did that and it went to the next thing. Great. In a three-year grant cycle, awesome. I can say that that was successful, but can I say that across, like, is there an overarching theme for Hemera? Of course, there's an overarching theme of, of helping people flourish and work that we did. I can support that quantitatively and qualitatively, but that's just data that's accumulated over time for specific grants. It's going to be dependent on what did I commit to and what period of time, what did I hope to achieve during that time? Because in 30 million words case, the outcomes of those kids, which were prenatal to three-year-old kids, their outcome is first and second grade, way after our dollars ever have gone. We, we, we right. can't get them back at that point. So measuring you know, preschool readiness and third grade reading scores for our grant, it's nice, but it's it's not actually the impact. The impact is that the intervention was able to go to the next we, stage. Many years ago, I was part of Children's Hospital, University of Illinois Advisory Board. A friend of ours, Dr. Usha Raj, was brought in, helped to create the 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 Children's Hospital portion of University of Illinois, and we 
what I learned is that they were doing, you know, 70, 65 to 70% of our patients were of need. And they were rolling out all of this program outreach to what I would call the more impoverished part of our city to help get these kids immunized and in for regular checks. And what I learned in this process was that one, the children have no rights, they have no voice. Right. So it's very important that we give them a voice. And that was the passion of Usha. So this was her yeah. true, true passion. But the outcome was she says, we don't really comprehend as we're doing this today, if we do not immunize these children, if we do not get them medically set to be able to be in our world today, they will become dependent on the state as right. far as their medical needs. And it will be a huge burden if we right. don't fix this now. Yep. And I think that's a great way of looking at the today, the dollar, the time, the impact, and then they were trying to scale. Yep. Right? It's the, it's the same as the James Heckman equation at the University of Chicago of investing in early childhood education and early childhood interventions, like exactly. development, you know, Get eliminates social service needs after high school. It, it, it's one it's of those huge. like, Tried Huge. and true. It's been tested a million times. It's generally correct. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, always exceptions to the rule, but the Heckman equation has driven a lot of philanthropy. And so, um, the, and the work that, you know, that Harvard's done on the space at Center Developing Child, like all those, they, they're amazing work that has, in essence, the goal is to create sustained and sustainable people in, in, that that don't need social services and that saves money and that saves money long term again it's it, you're impact go back to original and you're just contributing to the system of support that you're in for a period of time That's like right. it, it okay. always it always comes back to that and again why i love this is that you can always circle it back into this where am i going to be most effective in the system of support in this moment of time and, and does it connect to things that I'm passionate about? And then can I move it forward from there? One of the uh, charitable groups that I've gotten involved with is called the Legacy Project. And what we've recognized is that the LGBTQ community is not doing a good job of getting legacy gifts from our, our community to support. There's a little over 200 non-profitable charitable organizations that serve the community across the country. Yep. And uh, so... <clears throat> the Horizons Foundation out of San Francisco is trying to work with the charities to help them understand what they can do because yep. so many of them are prepared to do to, to prepared to handle legacy gifts, right? Sure. And now what my group is on the front side is now we're going out to both the estate planning attorneys and the financial advisors to try and help educate them as to what we can do to make these aware to to help motivate people to make gifts and also to make awareness to the types of gifts. Yep. And of course, in the financial community, we have all these structures. Yep. And I, I'm really excited to have you talk about the structures for a minute, because this is the technical side of our work where, yep. you know, I always hear you in my head when I say, give the dollars, just, you know, you can always yep. just write the check and give the money or yep. make yep. the donation, right? And everybody else gets all caught up in all these structures. So would you like to review for us a yeah. little bit of these structures? I know you yeah. don't want to spend a lot of time, but a little time on this. I think it's important. Yeah. So I think it's important just to define a couple of them. So people know what they are and what they're not. And there's a lot of press on a bunch of them. And so I think it's just it's just an introduction. And it's, it's one, I'll, I'll lead with what I'll conclude, is like, don't be overwhelmed by it. 
it's just it's there's just structures that have been created to facilitate giving um and there's many of them but and each one have different purposes but um okay. there are different ways they're used so okay. um so well i just start and then you yeah. can so a donor, donor advised fund right most popular thing that's in the world today dafs DAFs, DAFs, however you want to call them, are public charities that receive dollars that where a donor receives an immediate benefit in the tax return that they then can elect to give that money over time. You do not have to give out that money once you donate it. So it's a, effectively a bank account that you hold until you have something, but you can realize the tax deduction in the current moment. There are new DAF rules being considered at this point, but they won't affect this part of it. It really will affect investment advisors and how they get paid is, is the new rules that are out there okay. or being proposed. So just for an example, how big the donor, donor advised funds have been around since the 1900s and were part of community foundations, specifically the New York Community Trust that was created in 1919 was, or 1912 was, is there, it had, donor advised funds have been around forever. Why they become popular is that the banks have picked them up as a charitable tools. So every bank has, or most banks have created a charitable entity separate from its, separate from its charter. Um, charter that hold donor advised funds. The biggest being Fidelity Charitable. Fidelity Charitable is the biggest nonprofit organization in the world what? With, four, with $48 billion under management as of 1231, 2022. Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard hold $89.6 billion of assets as of 1231-2022 allocated for philanthropic purposes. Okay. So Fidelity specifically gives away, distributes somewhere between $10.5 to $11.5 billion a year out of their fund. Okay. Right. So a huge what's come to this world is donor advised funds have become such a big deal because they're an easy, accessible resource to give your charitable dollars where you don't have to worry about it. Donor bank handles the any of the IRS reporting, does all the work. The trick of it of a donor advised fund is technically you, the donor, are giving the ability to give away the money to that organization. So if I set up a fidelity account. I'm giving Fidelity the ability to give away that money. Okay. But because it's donor advised, they will take what I say and say, I want to give it to the local fire department. They're like, great, we'll write the check. So they take my advisement and then execute my gift. They have the ability to say no if they don't want to. Okay. And and that is rare in the in the circumstances and and is likely something that will be um explored in the future as well but effectively you've given so since you've given it away you can receive the tax deduction and it grows into this big thing the donor advised funds are simple re tools to execute philanthropic giving and most mm -hmm. important it is is when we will talk about private foundations is that it doesn't require a staff you have a staff you have the bank staff do this work so cost wise to you it's effective from a giving standpoint okay one other thing of the assets, so in 2022, those organizations received almost $28 billion of gifts. So it increased their 
their donor advisor assets, under, about management. assets under management, $28 billion. Of that, $18 billion of it were non-cash assets, stock, illiquid securities, things like that. Oh. One of the really big benefits of working with a bank is they know how to value, sell, dis- and disperse illiquid assets. Ah. If you're a private foundation, maybe you don't have those resources or you don't Got have it. the valuation expert or you don't have the auditor that can do that. So the service that these donor advised funds provide, super helpful for super complicated assets that aren't necessary, aren't cash, so to speak. So you'll see like there, you can see their businesses evolving effectively to become more of a help with the illiquid program. So they're a good thing. They're a good thing. All things are good. As I said, all philanthropy is good. Now, is there in the industry, is there movement to make sure that they give out their money? Sure. But typically donor advised funds, Fidelity specifically, their give rate is somewhere between 20 and 25% a year. Of their okay. assets, they'll give that amount out where private foundations are, are you know, their minimum is 5%. So the argument okay. the donor advised fund world will make is that as they're already exceeding expectations with regards to that. And okay. generally speaking, that's true. So, but for yeah. a family and for an individual, forget the industry just for a moment. It's a way to accelerate your giving if you have something that you know needs work and can be distributed. There are things that are doing when a private foundation doesn't meet, doesn't have its 5% giving it can give to a donor advised fund. I don't, those are things I don't like because yeah. you're not, you're not affecting the system. And, you know, again, getting into geek world, like it does, it impacts the speed at which money gets to the philanthropic world. I don't like that kind of stuff, but as a tool, it and does. there's always in the world that we live in, Tim, you, you know, this as well is like, there's always going to be an actor or two that use it, utilizes it for their, own good or purpose of that kind of stuff or tax avoidance or all right. things. But for, for this amount of p- purpose, a donor advice fund is highly effective when you don't want to handle that. the administrative purpose of what you're, or all the activity that's guard. You just we fill out a simple form that says, I want to give to my local United way. And they go, great. And here it goes kind of thing. The other thing is donor advised funds can give anonymously, which is super helpful because some families don't want to know give who their names are or, or, um, you know, let that know. So donor advice funds can also provide um, anonymity anonymity to the, to the gifts that they give as well. So super effective tool, very helpful to the community. Yes. I am a proponent of getting it out of their systems as fast as possible into the places where it needs to go. But as a tool for effective, it's a great, it's a great way to use something that's already there. Exactly. And the other part, which you mentioned earlier for, new philanthropists it's a great place to go learn right okay. and it's a great place to to kind of test your skills to see if you actually have enough of a, a business plan or idea to create a private foundation because it does require tax and accountants and all these other things like is it does it actually satisfy your giving so it's a great tool as long as you're clear as to how you're giving your dollars how does it compare to a private foundation the next on so the list? Private foundation would be a separate organization created for the benefit of individuals to give away dollars. And so private foundations are cre- are created all the time when a family has a liquidation <laughs> event or as a result of a death or divorce. There are times where a charitable entity is created and most of the time that's a private foundation. 
private foundations require a board of directors to help make decisions. It requires the annual filing of a 990, which is an IRS tax form, and it, it has administrative burdens. So there is cost to be able to set up. It has to file uh, a setup document with the IRS, which is called a 1023, which isn't the easiest co- document to complete. So there is labor involved in creating it. You also are employing people to do the administration, to write the checks, to, to manage the impact measures, to mm-hmm. research grants. All, you, you're not leveraging the resources at other places. And so it's really when you have it on your own. People have asked me in this one, like, what's the right size for, yeah, it was just, for a private foundation? That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yep. I don't yep. know if there is a right size. Is there a minimum? There isn't a minimum, right? But at the I think in the old days before donor advised funds, anybody would create a private foundation to do this. Donor advised funds probably candled the couple, you know, hundreds of thousands, 50,000, 100,000. Like those are great places for donor advised funds. So you're not degrading the assets by expense in that way. For things that are millions in that, private foundations can make sense, especially if you you know what you want to do. The other thing is it a lot, private foundations give you flexibility to do things that a donor advised fund as a public charity can't. So really quick, we switched rules here. So public charity is the United Way, your like places that you've known, you're now in private foundation rules. So there's rules about distributions. There's rules about earnings and fees that all generate taxes if you do them wrong, right? So public charity isn't subject to those rules. Private foundations are. So you need to Got understand it. that kind of structure and make sure you know what you're doing. Public a lot more administration, a lot more administration. Absolutely. Do you burden the expense on? Right. But in okay. the, in our case, when you build administration, it should provide flexibility, right? So donor yeah. advised fund will not allow you to give to an individual, right? Because it, it it's against the policy and from the public charity. But okay. a private foundation, if you do what's called personal inurement, which is technical rule to say you can give to individuals as long as they're not biased selected and not a relative that says i want to help this person you can do that as long as it meets one of the charitable purposes by the irs which again it it, they're broad in their discussion and we don't need to go into the complexities but in, in essence if it goes into a charitable purpose a public private foundation may be able to do that as long as it provides documentation to the IRS as to what their charitable intent was and whether or not that charitable intent was was made. So it gives flexibility to do broader things in the world that a donor advised fund may not allow you to do because they're responsible for your giving. So that's, there's a lot in there. But Versus that's, a that's, public charity, which we discussed a little bit already, like a United Way or a, right. what's the hospital that they advertise on TV all the time? Um, Shriner, oh, uh, Shrine, yeah, Shriners, or you know, there's the like on TV. The theme that's always in my head is the Cars for Kids yep. commercial, like that. Like, yes, those are all public charities. Public charities, that have, okay. That that are effectively operating foundations that are serving a specific purpose and a specific community. And so there okay. are programs within that that have direct transfers, but it's all within there. To go back to what we were talking about, the in service of their intervention. Right. So it, it has limited their purpose. So the, the public charity is the 501c3? All organizations are 501c organizations. Then there's all bunch of designations between that. Most common is 501c3. Three. Within right. 501c3, 
a public charity and a private foundation both are captured within that designation. <laughs> and then there's different rules within that as well. IRS, Got it. Okay. The, the rules are not, the rules are complicated. Um, and this is part of why we're doing this is that this can be intimidating and overwhelming at the point and that it can prevent you from actually engaging in the work. And that's, I'm trying to demystify it a little bit and try you not are. to be too complicated that's from the fine. standpoint of saying, these, if you have an idea of what you want to do, you can make the decision that a donor advised fund or a private foundation would be more effective. And the public charity, which is what we discovered, then a community foundation. Yeah. I know there's a thing called like the Chicago community trust or mm -hmm. what is that? So a community foundation is a localized organization whose purpose is to support its community, specific its community. So okay. Chicago Community Trust, Boulder Community Foundation out here are, are meant to serve programs within their geographic boundary. They can have donor advised funds within them that actually oh. are supporting things like um, out here, the Boulder Community Foundation was a great supporter of the Marshall Fires and creating fires. So you can have a donor advised fund within that, but it also is dedicated to community kind of affiliated. Whenever I work with a new family and they want to help in their local communities, I 100% of the time call the um, community foundation to see if there's a program that already exists. Uh -huh. A little bit that we said already is a lot of this work is, has been done before. A lot of work in philanthropy has already been done before. So rather than recreate the wheel, you recommend everybody reach out and make sure it's not already there that you can just help to fund. Or learn from them or, or say, hey, okay. I want to fund this thing. Okay. And the group will tell you like, yeah, that's a great idea. We did that 20 years ago. It didn't work. Here's how we're doing it today. So community foundations usually have the pulse of uh, what actually is happening within their community. And then you have fiscal sponsor. Yep. So fiscal sponsor is becoming a more common term in the world. So if you have a public charity, let's use the example of a food kitchen who um, doesn't file its 501c3 status, like it just it just exists as a entity. Like it, it's not like an a LLC, just like a an regular LLC. LLC, regular LLC. A fiscal sponsor is an organization who lends its public charity status to that organization so that it can receive donations. So for example, if the food kitchen has a bunch of people who want to give donations, but want and want the tax deduction, mm -hmm. they will provide that money to a fiscal sponsor, most popular, which is the Tides Foundation, the group that I use all the time, it's the Social Good Foundation. They can receive the money and provide a tax deduction to the person who give who gave it. And, and then, then they can take that money and then fund the food kitchen because they will do the work to prove that the charitable intent as defined there. by the IRS was met. So it's in COVID. That's clever. This happened a bunch in COVID when okay. you need, because it, it takes anywhere from six to 10 months to get your IRS approval, even though when you file, you're allowed to accept donations as soon as you are, as soon as you acknowledge receipt. However, there's a little bit of risk if the IRS says, no, you're not a right charity, you have to return dollars. And there's a little bit of complication with regards to that. So fiscal sponsors are a great use of, of tools when there's a temporary situation, COVID being one. Saying we just need, we need to execute. Maui fire, the fire in Maui Boulder. Fire, Marshall fires, like all these Got things it. that, Fiscal sponsors can Flooding. help. Yeah, can help create a charity, get charitable dollars to for-profit entities for charitable purposes, and then the fiscal sponsor 
amongst administrative stuff. They'll do accounting, bookkeeping, they'll do the tax reporting, but they also extend their C3 status to make to sure that, that, that to that charity. Yeah. So it, it's a way to, for um, for-profit entities to get charitable dollars to meet, know a, meet a charitable purpose. The, the next would be charitable trust on your list. That's a pretty yeah. complicated. Is there a simpler way to explain a charitable trust? Yeah. The, the simple charitable trust is gets into the trust in the state rules, but I only want to highlight two that are in, that are okay. ones you'd hear is the charitable lead trust and the charitable remainder trust effectively charitable lead trust is one where a family or someone sets up a irrevocable trust for the benefit in a lead case for the benefit of a beneficiary of a family beneficiary but the lead part is any of the income the trust generates before that person is eligible a beneficiary is eligible goes to a charitable entity so it, the leading income is distributed to charity that's yeah. a charitable lead trust Charitable remainder trust is when the income it benefits supports a beneficiary until they pass, and whatever's left goes to charity. Remainder. Makes sense. So lead is the income before, and the remainder, remainder is, is after at the, the death. End. Yeah, and those are the most common charitable trust structures. And then you have fiscal responsibility and direct gifts. Mutual yeah. So aid. yeah, it's a couple of things here. Just our terms more than anything else. So okay. fiscal responsibility is understanding whether or not it, as a donor, you're responsible for under, making sure that the donation you've made, if you use taxable, pre-tax, after-tax dollars, if you've used the taxable deduction mm-hmm. and then you've donated, you have the responsibility that that money went to a charitable purpose. Okay. If you give it to a C3 organization, your work is done because they've, they've already met the terms. You've, they handle it from there. If it doesn't meet a C3 status, like we said, the food kitchen, mm-hmm. you donor are responsible for making sure that it it met its charitable purpose in order to receive the deduction. Okay. So that's called fiscal responsibility. And it's a reporting. Easy. Yeah, there's a reporting requirement within the tax world okay. that allows you to do that work. So that's what fiscal responsibility. Direct gifts and uh, mutual aid work as is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. We talked about a little bit yeah. with pandemic of love is the direct transfers or the unrestricted income to people and giving cash gifts has been happening globally for years and years, but it's starting to show up in the U.S. And it helped, it started in the U.S., especially when there is crisis moments where people just need a few dollars just to support that work. That's becoming more and more popular as a charitable effort, but it's not tax deductible. So it's it's okay. ma- making sure we understand like when you're giving to an individual, especially one you select, like Tim, if I wanted to give you money, there's no way I could call it charitable simply because I'm directing it to you to your personal benefit. And so that's that's not charitable. However, if I give it if I say and I, I have, have no a- problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> but if I have a thousand dollars to give to my community that a charitable community foundation determines here's five people who could use 200 bucks each right. and you give it to them, you can argue that you've done mutual aid work and that it's charitable, but mutual aid work for, for, for this conversation, at least, and the work that you do with um, Indiegogo or any of those kind of uh, website things is all mutual aid and not tax deductible. Well, this is really helpful to, I think this is a, a, a key to navigating the more complex side of 
philanthropy or charitable giving. And right. you and I talked about that we use these terms interchangeably. Right. Um, and I think it's very helpful for our listeners to understand that there are structures of design that are already in place that you can utilize depending on what you're trying to do. And it's an easy thing sometimes to access them, particularly um, if the charitable group already has what you want to donate. If you want to impact this organization, you want to do multiple gifts or bigger gifts. Right. It's a nice way to be able to take the administrative burden of that giving and give it to those organizations that do this every day, every day, day in and day out. And they're very efficient. I would say most of this. Yeah, potentially for me and my work, all of these are tools, right? So I start with what do you want to accomplish and then design the tool that meets that purpose. Too many times structures are set up first. We had a liquidation event. We created a private foundation. Well, maybe that private foundation is right or wrong. You haven't done the work yet, right? So I my, my mission in life is, is to actually start from the values work that we had talked about in the last episode mm-hmm. and, and move that forward and then design the structure, structure that after. meets that goal. And even temporary, if it's a, you know, spend down or spend up foundation, you know, working with a time horizon saying, I only want this dollars to be given over certain periods of time there are different structures that work better for that than others. And so those mm-hmm. are all tools. Yeah. Once you've decided what you want to do and how you want to do it, the structure stuff comes after. Do you, is there anything that you'd like to say that you normally don't get to say to people when you're doing this work? Don't get overwhelmed by the structures. There's too, there's the, the rules are complicated and there's too many ins and outs. There are plenty of people who have sorted it out already and there are plenty of people who can give good advice on that. So don't be afraid to ask for help on those things. Because, you, again, what we've been saying all the time, philanthropy should be simple. It should be. However, some of the structures are not. And so you can rely on people out there. And again, we've given my contact information as well. I'm happy to talk through those things, too. It's just ask for help. Uh, and help is more effective when you know what you want to do. I think it's been... A real pleasure to have you on the show, Rob, because it's been for me personally, I and and you and I both have a passion for giving and helping others. And I really encourage everybody that's listening. If you are not involved with charitable giving or philanthropy, find a passion, find a way to help others. It's going to give you the best, the warmest feeling. And remember, I think Rob has reminded me many times that the charitable groups that we're working with, these people don't get paid a lot of money. They're short on staff. They're overwhelmed with need. So please have empathy when you're working with them, because I think it's just really helpful. The more organized you are and the more willing you are to listen to where they can, that we can be of help. Rob's comment about ask for help or how can we help? I think was the better. How can we help? Then, So find out what you like, talk to the people about how you can help, and then determine your action plan. Yep. Am I got that right? And that one thing I'll say is as much as for executive directors who are working in this space and staffs and that kind of stuff, they are also the most optimistic people you'll ever meet because, <laughs> because they, they know in their hearts that the work that they're doing will solve their problem. So jump in the boat with them. So yes, are they... There are many who are underpaid. There are many who are stressed. There's many who are working on limited resources. But if you get them to talk about what they're trying to solve, they are the most optimistic people in the world. And that, 
for me is why I do this work because that energy is infectious. And, and that's where you really feel like you're doing something. How can we get a hold of you, Rome? So email is rek at arlington.com. And my phone number is 203-554-9077. And Tim? Everybody, you can reach me at uh, tim.volk at tvolkco.com. You can go to my website and uh, look around. If you have questions, you can email me. You can call me at 312-636-5855 or text me. And I'm happy to network with you. Rob and I have an extensive network that we're willing to share if, if we could be of any help in the work. Patrice, any thoughts you have? My thoughts were, I'm going to give them right now. Follow, like this podcast, yeah. but also share and talk about the parts you can play in philanthropy. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvolco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.